Welcome to the Swing Left Nebraska podcast that's all about energizing communities, advocating for change, and making a difference in the great state of Nebraska. We'll dive deep into the heart of Nebraska's progressive movement, exploring the stories, strategies, and initiatives that are shaping the political landscape. We're here to amplify the voices of candidates, local activists, and community leaders who are fighting for a more equitable, inclusive, and prosperous Nebraska. Swing Left Nebraska is your go-to resource for staying informed about key issues, upcoming elections, and how you can get involved. Whether you're a seasoned organizer, a concerned citizen, or someone who's looking to make a difference for the first time, we've got you covered. Get ready to be inspired, and let's embark on this incredible journey together. Welcome to Season 3 of the Swing Left Nebraska podcast. My name is Leah. Thank you to old-time listeners and brand-new listeners for tuning in today. You all are the best. We hope you had a wonderful summer and remained engaged and vigilant. In season three, we have a lot in store for you, and we're excited to have you join us on this journey. Today, we have an exceptional guest joining us again, Senator Tony Vargas. He's a dedicated public servant and passionate advocate for his community, ready to fight for change in District 2 in Congress. Without further ado, let's do a show. Welcome back to the Swing Left Nebraska podcast, Senator Vargas. I am so grateful for your time and for our audience who may have never heard of you, get to learn about you and for people who know some about you and are interested in learning more. Can you just start off by introducing yourself and sharing a bit about your background, and why you've decided to run for Congress again. Yeah, happy to. I always struggle with exactly what I want to share about my background because there's just a lot of things that I feel like are important we should know about our elected officials. It's about the why, like why they want to run for office, but it's also about who they are and where they come from. Because when, once they're in office, they have to feel and be accountable to people and to the values. So there are a couple of things that, that usually are what I share with people that I communicate. One is I am the son of immigrants. My parents were both born and raised in Lima, Peru, and they came to this country with very little to nothing. They were the first in their families to be here in this country. They figured out how to find work. They were living beyond paycheck to paycheck, it was a very hard time for them. And me being one of three boys in this family, we watched our parents sacrifice everything for us. And so there's this aspect of seeing your parents sacrifice everything because they believe the next generation deserves a different set of opportunities sticks with you. And it's one of the big reasons why I got into public service in the first place. It is ultimately about not just helping your own family, but your extended family, your community, the people around you and trying to lift people up. If it wasn't for certain friends and people in the community that helped that for me and my family, I wouldn't be here. Me and my brothers all either served in the military or, or first-generation college graduates all have families and kids, and we're now able to 
be members, contributing members of our community. Um, so that's a, a really big part of my life. It's a really big part of the reason why I've been a school board member for my public schools and why I've been a state senator for the last seven years. It's why I've worked on affordable housing and it's why I've worked on early education and child and early ed because of my experiences. It's why I've worked on education funding and a former public school teacher. That's why I care about healthcare access and preventative public health because I've seen what it, how it impacted my family and my community. That's why I care about a good workforce and good jobs because that is how my parents were able to climb out of poverty. So those are just some of the things that I typically share with people, especially amidst this last 11 years in elected office. There's a reason why I continue doing this. I think we need truly more everyday people. And then an indication, my kids are in the background, like listening to Frozen right now as they're like finishing up eating breakfast. <laughs> so that's just a little bit about me, the things that I love to share with people so they know where I'm coming from. Awesome. And what would you say the key issues that you are passionate about and would like to address if elected to Congress? I feel like I remember you asking this question in my first time, and I'm hoping I'm being consistent because I think my first reaction was, there are some key things I want to work on, but in general, there's just, there are a lot of things that we need our representatives to work on. My background in the legislature, I've worked on a lot of different issues because there's not one thing that is really affecting families right now. It's cost of living, whether or not people can afford their groceries or their gas or the other myriad of things that are in life right now that are becoming more expensive. There's early education, whether or not it, there's high quality education that's available and whether or not it's affordable, which both of which we need to work on and what I've worked on. There's whether or not people have access to the healthcare system. Too often people don't have a primary care physician. People don't have their lifeline to healthcare is usually avoiding it or a federally qualified health center, like a One World or a Charles Drew in our community in Omaha, or it's, there's a lack of preventative care. We don't have enough people in engaging and interacting with the public healthcare system. And that's something else I've worked on. It, it, it's workforce development. We have schools all across Omaha, our public schools. We graduate people, but they're graduating and they're not at a level that they can then go and seek out their own job. We have anywhere between 30 to 50% proficiency, low proficiency in reading and writing and math and science across our graduates. And we have to figure out a way to get those individuals into the right workforce and make sure that they are leveling up to where we can get them into the jobs we currently have. And then there's this very reactive, but necessary area of law and of life, which is in addition to focusing on jobs and cost of living and our education system and our healthcare system, rights are very quickly, not slowly, very quickly being taken away from women and from LGBTQ individuals. And we're seeing it in real time. It's not happening in just a generation where it's just slowly eroding. It's happening right away. It happened just last year in the legislature. You know, it's happened across this country with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It's been happening in communities where there are fewer and fewer elected officials willing to listen to women and are also not listening to healthcare professionals and experts and associations about what's right, what, what we need, what is the right healthcare access that's available. And that is a big part of also why I'm running. It's a, there's a reactive side of, we need people that are advancing things that are going to help working individuals and working families and, and growing the middle class. But we also need people that are going to fight against things that are taking away people's rights and standing up for them. 
And so those are the two big pockets of things that I hope to work on and I won't be doing it alone. You know, what I remind people, if somebody tells you they're running for office and they have all the answers, that's not the person that I'm looking to then support. It's not that they have all the answers. It's that they're willing to be educated and surround themselves with the people to try to find the best solutions. There's no one solution to any of these problems. But when I'm working on public health issues, I'm talking to public health nurses and practitioners and leaders that have been doing this type of work across the community. When I'm talking about small business development, I'm talking to small business owners, people that have not been touched by some of the programs that we have or not been invested in, some that have been. And when I'm talking about women's health care, I'm listening to women, I'm listening to physicians and OBGYNs and family med physicians. This is, sometimes I feel like it's not. It shouldn't be a sort of rocket science that we listen to the people most affected by these laws and we listen to the professionals that have been doing this work their entire lives, but we need more of that in our elected officials. And that's something that I really hope to be a really big part of how I lead as a member of Congress. So it sounds like listening is a key component of your campaign and who you see yourself as a leader is really focusing on that listening part. How else do you see yourself being an advocate for the rights of underrepresented and marginalized groups such as women, racial and ethnic minorities, and the LGBT community? Sometimes when I think we talk about marginalized groups, we tend to focus on what we're going to do separately. And one of the things that I've really tried to do is try to figure out a way where it's all inclusive of the things that we're doing. Because when we create some more of the exclusion, we're lacking more of the inclusion. A good example is the reason why I've worked on maternal and child health is because I care about maternal and child health as a policy. But I also found that there are deep uh, gaps and inequities for Black women and Latina women in terms of the type of care that they receive, the type of rates of maternal mortality. And I saw these gaps that exist. And so one of the things that I've worked on in the legislature has been on maternal and child's health as a result of it. It hasn't only been on African-American or Latina maternal health because the gaps are distinct for those subgroups of marginalized groups. That's why I'm working on this area. And we're really working on the data collection, data driving the decision-making and doing a lot more of the listening to women and listening to people in this profession. And by and large, we are really working, this policy area has real inequities. And so by working in this area very unapologetically and collecting the right data, we are addressing those inequities through this work. The last three years, I passed two big maternal and child health packages focused on allowing healthcare practitioners to collect the right data so that they can help inform policies at the ground level across Nebraska with a focus on making sure we're collecting the data on the subgroups so we know exactly who's the most affected and how we can actually address some of these real gaps. We also passed a sort of Medicaid postpartum care expansion from two months to 12 months, which was my priority bill and something that Senator Kavanaugh had been working on for years. And it is critical that we provide this postpartum Medicaid coverage access and the people that had the least coverage or they're going to be affected by this gap are going to be a lot of women of color and a lot of marginalized subgroups that fall into this. So like when I'm working on years ago with Senator Penny Penzing Brooks on LGBTQ anti-discrimination in the workplace, 
we're really working on finding protections within law that in addition to protecting for people's religion and people's gender and people's and a lot of different other protected classes, we were trying to put them on equal playing field as others. I think that's one of the ways that I've really worked on trying to addressing some of these gaps by directly addressing some of the inequities, but also focusing on the broad policies that will affect the entire space for women, for children, for people of color, for LGBTQ individuals and youth. And I say this is like me as a science teacher. Being a science teacher was about being very data-driven, being compassionate, but also being looking at how we address the gaps and and bringing people along into that sort of strategic thinking, because that's how I approached teaching in my classroom. That's how I approached working and building culture with my kids. So that's how I'm going to approach things in Congress as well. And it's what I've done in, in Lincoln and what I'll do in D.C. Well, it sounds like it's been an approach that has already driven success, if that was your goal. Now, if elected, how would you stay connected with your constituents and ensure their voices are heard in Congress? So this is always an interesting question because, you know, here's a good example. I've been in office for about seven years and we get a lot of messages. We get a lot of calls. We get a lot of emails. We get a lot of requests and asks, and it's a good problem to have. I love all my colleagues. I will tell you, there's some of us that get asked to do a lot more than others in terms of engaging in the community. And it's what I signed up for. And I think that one of the ways that we stay connected is by finding the openness to the public. You know, what still sticks with me is this data point from a nonprofit in South Omaha to this data point in, in the, the sort of encompassing East Omaha. And the data point basically was they surveyed more than a thousand different neighbors in East of 72nd Street, and they were asked, do you feel like your local elected officials are accessible? Now, from what I remember, it was in like the 20s or 30%. It didn't even crack over 50%. And not only do you feel like they are available, do you feel comfortable contacting them? And that was also incredibly low, below 40% in the 30s. And it, the reason why I bring that up is it was a very clear reminder to me that there's different ways of being accessible and it's not enough to just do a town hall which I often, we're not even seeing regularly from our own congressperson. It's about how we engage communities that we agree with and we disagree with. It's how people feel like you actually are responding to their questions and responding and engaging to their opinions. It's also how you are having ongoing listening sessions with different groups of people. We are actively doing that. We've done town halls nearly every single year. Multiple town halls, we have had one-on-one -on -one meetings scheduled pretty much throughout the year. I have a lot of phone conversations with people on a lot of different issues. And sometimes I think people think it's mostly about access. Like it's if you are a donor or if you are somehow connected, that's the person that gets the way to access to an elected official. And I can't speak to other offices, but in my office, that is not the case. The other day I got contacted by a mother that really wanted me, it was her son that was, was a Cub Scout. And he wanted to talk to an elected official about what are some constitutional rights of a citizen? What are our duties? And it is just me and the student and his mother. And we set up a Zoom and we had a great conversation and he shared some things that matters to him. And he was asking me a lot of questions about what my civic responsibility is and what, he, what I believe his is. And this is an example of 
how, you know, we problem solve and engage and listen to different groups. Soon I'll be meeting with a group of women adult soccer players to talk about how we can better engage them with the resources in our community with mental health resources. I got invited to to speak to some high school students in my community, going to some of their musical plays and theater, and then having conversations with them as follow-up on how I can be more engaged in the arts. It, it runs the gamut. One of the things we've been building a culture is anybody can contact us through any of these different mechanisms and we're going to respond. The when we don't respond, sometimes we make mistakes, we bounce back from them and then we, we prioritize people, not any type of any other sort of decision-making on who we talk to. So that's what we do. And I think it's been a good problem or opportunity to have. We get a lot more calls. We get a lot more asks. In a couple of weeks, I'm speaking to a group of doctors off the record conversation about advocacy. I'm going to speak to some practitioners in mental health about how we can engage communities of color. And this is the work that's done. It's what's needed. So I keep getting asked largely because I think I keep saying yes. <laughs> but I want that percentage of people feeling like we are accessible and we listen to go up. And it's not enough just to send a form letter, right? It's not enough just to say, I appreciate you telling me and thank you. And we are listening. That's not active listening. Like it's the things that I'm hearing, we're cataloging, we are bringing it in. It's informing me directly and it's shaping the kind of policies that I push. And it's also shaping the way that I reason when we're talking about helping the middle class. So that's what I do. Not a science, more of an art, but it's a commitment I made to my constituents, the commitment I'm making to the people of Nebraska second district. That's how I'm going to lead what I'm going to do once I'm in office. So it sounds like you really make a concerted effort to meet people where they are. What are, kinds of things are you hearing from people right now? What am I hearing from people? There is an area of constituents and people across the district, not just my district, that are really worried about the state of our country. It's always interesting when I have a conversation with somebody that is a registered Republican and just expressing they're like struggle, like they're just inner struggle with, I am a small government person, but I don't feel like we're doing that anymore. And I'm a Democrat and I have always been a lifelong Democrat. My job is to represent everybody, but I'm, I never shy away from telling people what my background or what my, what my political affiliation is. It's a lot of the ways that I've used things. It's one part of my identity, in addition to being a dad, being a husband and being a community member, being first generation, it is one part of my identity. But hearing from individuals that are sharing with me, and it's a lot more where they're struggling with seeing how certain things they view as a small government conservative position, what we're trying to tell schools what they can and cannot teach. And we're trying to tell parents what kind of healthcare that their kids and their youth are able to receive and just going down this rabbit hole of just intruding on their privacy, like this, that I'm hearing and honestly, just listening, letting people air out and hearing just the distrust they have with their own, with their reflection. And I'm hearing it with Republicans and independents. I definitely hear it from a lot of Democrats, but hearing it from people all across the political spectrum is. I think is a, this is an inflection point, which is there are shared common values across all parties. I think there are, we don't talk about them enough. And I think we don't talk about them enough because it's not the party system that we have is partly set up in a way where we're largely picking a set of values and beliefs that we have. 
But I think we forget that there's a common thread. And one of the common threads is that, or at least what I've been parsing out is people care about level of independence and freedom. And they want that to be protected. And in a, when I'm often talking to Democrats, we're talking about the independence and freedom that's coming from making decisions for your, for healthcare. We're talking about the independence and freedom and the ability to do, but how it, how different it is in our country versus other countries to be able to succeed in that piece of the American dream. And I see many of those things are crossing over into other groups, but what we've recently seen is this sort of independence and privacy is becoming a larger thread and it's more pronounced. And there's disagreements that we're hearing in terms of what we see in policy. So that's something that I'm hearing a lot more from a lot of different groups. The other things that I'm really hearing are people are feeling like not listened to and forgotten. I feel like women feel like they're not being listened to. I hear that constantly, but I think it's shared across all different parties. Like I think we all have to do a better job of listening to women and their perspectives. I think we have to do a heck of a better job of actually engaging different groups. And it's something that I've done in the legislature, but we can all do a better job of that. And I'm hearing that it's, it's creating that sort of distrust. I think we all forget when Trump was elected in 2016, so much of the polling was so uneducated because who we polled wasn't representative who voted. There are so many people every single year, every single two years, whatever the cycle is for your campaign, every year across this country and in Nebraska, there's so many people that don't consistently vote. And when they do come out and vote, they largely come out just because they're excited about a candidate. That is one reason we've heard, but it's also because they feel distrust about the system or they don't feel like they're being heard. And unfortunately, we heard that a lot in the age of Trump. People didn't feel like they were being heard. They felt like they were just... And feel heard by either party. And I, I still hear that, which is like, what are you actually going to do to just to be a better person and try to represent more of my interests and also not just work on behalf of other politicians or work on behalf of billionaires, but work on behalf of me. And what I try to remind people is everybody gets elected to office in my humble belief, get elected with good intentions and they turn into something. And that's what I'm really trying to communicate from listening and communicating to them. That's the way that I want to lead. Like, I don't always just hear policy. I hear people's very deep-seated distrust with the state of politics. Part of my job, I feel like, is to infuse a bit more hope and idealism that it could be different and that we need people in there that are also willing to hold people accountable. It is the way we build trust back into a system. It's what we do when we have companies or nonprofits, there's things that have to change. But the one thing that really has to change is if we don't like the way that, that the culture is working and if we don't feel like it's actually representing us and the people that are actually representing us are not part of the solution, then we have to change the kind of people that are in these positions. That's why I'm running. I think we need a different representative that may not have the solution because I don't think anybody has a solution, but wants to be part of the decisions to change those things. It's more than just saying that you're bipartisan. It's actually being bipartisan and actively changing the discourse in our country, not just pointing fingers and blaming the other side. I can point fingers on policy, but I'm not just going to blatantly say that one side is wrong because of their party affiliation. Right now, I can blame people for the insurrection. I can blame people for undermining democracy. I can blame people for taking away rights from the middle class 
or there are votes and there's key, key things that people have said. But I also, I'm going to hold people accountable no matter what their political affiliation is. That's what I hear a lot more these days, superseding the policy and the pain that people feel. This is a big pain that people don't want to talk about. And you are landing on some good points that's leading me to a good segue for my final question for you. What are some key things that set you apart from Don Bacon? This is your opponent that you're running against yeah. for the second time. For <laughs> case people don't know, just <clears throat> FYI. What are some unique qualifications or experiences you have that you are bringing to the table? As a lead into this question, one thing I want to share, because I didn't get to answer it earlier on, the reasons why I'm running and the reasons why I'm running again are the same. Because the intent and the kind of politician, the kind of elected official I want to be are still the same. The tangible reasons on why we know we can win and why this is one of the, I would say, very much the top five most important elections that we can absolutely win and the most competitive across the country, absolutely, is because of what we saw last year. And this is a reminder to everybody that's listening that is wanting to swing left and do this work. Last year across the second district, when we compare just Republicans to Democrats in terms of who turned out, and they're, re they're relatively close in terms of registration, Republicans turned out 10% better in compared to Democrats, 10% better. Despite being 10% better in terms of their turnout, we came within about 2.5%, 5,700 votes. That shows that we had cross-party appeal. It shows that we were able to reach independents and Republicans. And that is where I think we can absolutely swing and win this district. And not only that, last year they spent about $10 million nearly of outside money, outside super PAC money in this district, not in California, not in a California race, not in a not in New York race. They spent that amount here in Nebraska second district. That is three times the amount they spent in 2018, the last non-presidential year. They were really worried that we were going to win and they had to try to scare people to not vote. And we know that they see this as one of the most competitive seats across the country. And Already this year, I think Kevin McCarthy's donated at least $300,000 to my opponent, to Don Bacon, directly for, through a lot of different means. Pete Ricketts has already donated 150000 directly to him. They are worried and they are afraid that we're going to win this race because we are represented by people. I think it's a little bit less than 350000 250000 of the of what he has fundraised in the first six months of this year is actually from Nebraskans. We raised more in a matter of 24 hours of announcing this race from Nebraskans than he did in the first six months of this race. We are supported by people all over the state, all over this community, all over the district. And I think the reason is because of the very stark policy differences. So the voters made it really clear, especially Republicans and independents, that they want something different. But they had to spend the money to try to scare people out of voting. And here's the opportunity. Here's the hope and idealism when we can focus on getting turnout and finding the 5,700 people, two and a half percent, to get out to vote. And we tell them, look, Tony Vargas cares about gun safety. Don Bacon doesn't care about gun safety. It's clear for working parents and mothers and fathers sending their kids to school. When I send my child to school, I want to know that they're going to be there when I come pick them up. I don't want to think that there could be like what we had in the Target here in Omaha happening in one of our areas or schools. He's got an A rating from the NRA. He's taken so much money from them. He is unapologetically, what he says, pro-Second Amendment and has voted against funding even safety in schools in terms of mental health safety. This is a stark contrast between me and him because I want to make sure that 
we could keep and protect rights, but also be common sense, like having universal background checks and banning certain types of specific guns. Like these are no brainers. The policy supports it. The public supports it overwhelmingly and poorly. But more importantly, it is right for our communities. Women's health. Val Bacon has said time and time again, he believes in putting an abortion ban in the constitution, a personhood amendment. When he said that, he was very clear. This is with no exceptions for rape, incest, or life of the mother. His voting position has been making it harder for people to be able to access the healthcare access that's needed for women. And we just can't have that when we're talking about this day and age, when we've already seen more rights taken away from women. And when I look at my daughter and when I look at my wife, I want them to have lived in a world where we are protecting their rights, not taking them away. And that Don Bacon isn't more informed than their family med physician or their OBGYN, which he is not, by the way. And this is his policy on this is just completely out of step with this district. And then also with the middle class, I'm not, a, I'm a believer that somebody can talk a big game about, I support the middle class. You can't say you support the middle class when you cut and you vote against public education funding. You can't say you vote for the middle class when Don Bacon has voted against, voted against unions. He has a 20, you'd be told a 23, 28% lifetime voting record with the AFL-CIO. That is not a pro-union voting record. That's not a pro-middle-class voting record. That's an anti-middle-class voting record. When he voted against middle-class tax cuts, that's an anti-middle-class voting record. I voted for tax cuts, responsibly giving money back to voters. I voted for early education, for childcare access and funding, where he has voted against this time and time again. That's the last big thing that just separates is who we actually represent. Who does he work for and who do I work for? As a state senator, I made $12,000 a year. I made a commitment and a sacrifice to do this job so that we have more everyday people in the legislature. And I'm going to do the same thing in Congress. Well, Congressman Bacon has been in Congress. He's mostly been receiving money from corporate tax. He's been doing the bidding of billionaires and corporate CEOs. That's who is funding his campaign. It's not Nebraskans overwhelmingly. Nebraskans support my campaign. He continues to fight for tax breaks for them. He has said he is trying to negotiate on the backs of children and families so he can get a tax break for some of these corporate CEOs. I'm just not having that. I, there's a stark difference between who is actually representing the general public and everyday middle-class Nebraskans. And that's me. And he's the one that continually has a voting record. The thing he says where he stands by middle-class America is when he voted for the Trump tax cut, which overwhelmingly benefited the rich and the wealthy in this country. That is not the kind of representative that we need representing this district. There are stark differences between the two of us, and we're going to make it really clear in this campaign, but more importantly, I want the people and listeners of this to know, it's not only voting against somebody that's bad on policy. You're also voting for somebody that's going to be really good on helping to grow America and grow Nebraska and grow the middle class and create good jobs, protect women's health care invest in our schools. That's the kind of person that I'm going to be. It's how I've been in the legislature. That's what I'm going to be for you as a member of Congress. So I really hope I can earn your help and support. Tell everybody, please donate their time. Volunteer. We've had a hundred plus volunteers already in the first six weeks of this campaign. Please donate your resources. If you can make a monthly donation, it helps. We're powered by people. Everybody says that, but we are actually powered by people. Please go to TonyVargas.com. Sign up there for either a recurring contribution, five, $10, it will go a long way because we're expecting at least $10 million, if not more, maybe $15 million of outside money in this race. And I would rather be supported by Nebraskans and everyday Americans any day of the week than any of these large 
billionaire super PACs that, that Don Bacon's going to be supported by. So I appreciate you very much, Leah, and hope that answers your question. Absolutely. And I will put all of your information in our show notes so folks can just click on those links and learn how they can donate. And like you said, get involved. I understand you're already doing some canvassing. How's that going? Well, it's been amazing. We've been knocking on doors, thousands of doors. We have high school and college students that have been joining us as part of our fellow program. And I've been knocking on doors. I do it nearly every single Saturday, although this Saturday was an exception because of how hot it was. But we are, we're literally knocking on doors every single weekend until the election. And it's no surprise. The reason we're doing it is because there are certain communities in our district that we haven't been able to talk to. We didn't get to talk to them last year. We're going to talk to them this year. We want them to know that they're being heard and that there's somebody that is going to fight for their vote, not try to scare them out of it, not try to buy it, but actually listen and try to earn it. And so we're doing the work. Thank you, Senator Vargas, again for your time. We are so lucky to have you as a leader in our community now, and we will do everything we can to support you in your next chapter. So again, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Leah. I appreciate it. That was an excellent interview with Senator Tony Vargas. We hope you learned a lot about his campaign, and we encourage you to visit VargasForNebraska.com for more information, to donate, and to get involved. Thank you again for listening to the Swing Left Nebraska podcast. We'll be back next week with a conversation with Sarah Centineo running for District 45. Until then, we encourage you to get involved in your local community, whether it's through volunteering for a political campaign, supporting a local organization, or simply having a conversation with your friends and family about the issues that matter most to you. Let's mobilize. Let's take action. Let's go. Ready, set, go. Get ready to go.